0: We're here at Communist Camp. Let me, let me describe it in detail. It is basically like the Turning Point USA conference, except it's not in a, uh, like a Ramada Inn convention center, and it's not filled with grifters making, somehow, a million dollars a weekend. It's filled with really good communists sharing food, sharing ideas, playing, talking theory, making food, hiking. It's a very beautiful time. Um, if you're a Turning Point USA person, you're living a miserable life, and you should become a communist.
1: We're also making a lot of uh, macrame, hammer, and sickles, because that's what you do at Commie Camp.
0: I mean, yeah, not everything we we do isn't atrocious. Uh, so, but we are talking about some high-level ideas. And the recent issue of Commune, there was an essay about the work of an artist who I understand is pretty popular named... Little Nas X. I've never heard this song, uh, Old Country Road, I think it's called, and I can't find it online. Um, So uh, Joshua Clover's here. Uh, Could you play the song for me so I I know what we're talking about?
2: That's my communist dream, is to play this internet sensation song for you, Andy. (laughs) Close to being key. I'm gonna ride into. No, we can't. Yeah, we got to start this again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you were doing it so good before. Come on.
2: It takes a while to get a key. Oh my God, I've lost entirely. Ride into- gonna take my horse to the old town road. With- Ride until we can't no more. Gonna take my horse to the hometown road. We're gonna ride until we can't no more. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Can't tell me... Okay, that's enough. I feel like that gives you a good sense of it. There's verses, but uh, they're
0: different. So to me, this sounds just like a normal country song, but uh, I understand from your article there's something peculiar about this country song? Uh,
2: There's a lot of peculiar things about it. I mean, it sounds like a country song right now because I'm humming and strumming on an acoustic guitar, but the song itself is built from samples that uh, Lil Nas X and and the producer of the song named Keo from the Netherlands, uh, they bought online very cheaply. You can buy cheap samples online, and they put them together. It's got a beat that's sort of similar to trap music. Uh, And so it was a little hard for people to figure out the genre of the song. But as you note, it in many ways seems like a country song. So in its first week of appearing on the pop charts, it went rocketing up the Billboard country charts. But then a strange thing happened. What's that, you ask? I'll tell you. Uh, So it, it went on those charts because Lil Nas X, when he recorded it, he posted it on some online sites, and he tagged it, as you can as a country song so it went on those charts but after a week the editorial board of Billboard magazine which is in charge of these things, they're the power that determines how the charts work got together and decided it was not country enough. Why? Maybe it was the samples, maybe it was the somewhat hip-hop beat probably it was Lil Nas X's Black Uh, and while there have been uh, African-American country stars uh, the thrust of this song and Lil Nas X's race, uh, caused Billboard to pull it from the country charts and move it to the hip hop R&B charts where it went on to be the most streamed
0: song in the history of the world. And in your article, you, you focus on, uh, is a very positive, uh, reading of this song as an example of, um, the way uh, the the race line in the United States can be transgressed that is uh, shows the absurdity of it in a way and um, and and like not only works as this kind of uh, act of obvious subversion that everybody that's legible to everybody but is also just very simple and not so and not offensive like people love it. Um, what do you see as being the the cultural significance of this song in this moment?
2: So, I mean, on the, on the one hand, I never want to give songs credit for changing the world or things like this, but it did have an interesting character of a sort of magic spell, or like an Emperor's New Clothes moment, where country and hip-hop, uh, there happen to be two genres I love. They've developed in parallel. They're deeply American. They draw on other national, international histories, but they're deeply American genres but they're often set in opposition. They're both premised on performances of racial authenticity, one black and one white. And so, uh, sort of traditionally, they're thought of as antagonistic, no one could like both, uh, and, and the, they couldn't go together. And I think underneath that is, this, as I suggested, a deep kinship, uh, a deep kinship, not just that they're both sort of amazing forms of uh, North American indigenous music, but that they're both the musics of the proletariat. That doesn't mean all the fans are working class people by any means, but they're identified with the black proletariat and the white proletariat. And so they have this deep underlying kinship and yet exist in this perpetual antagonism. And that's interesting, like allegory about race in general, perhaps. Uh, And so along comes Lil Nas X. And although he got a bit policed by the Billboard editorial staff and, and so on, everyone else was sort of fine with it. And they're like, all right, it's country, it's hip hop, fine, uh, and didn't, there wasn't a lot of freak out, there wasn't a lot of pushback. I'm sure there were some racist white dudes who were like, that's not country, I don't wanna hear that trash, but there weren't that many. It wasn't a big deal, everyone went with it, and it just really felt like something had been overcome, at least for a moment.
1: I don't know if you know a lot about this because it wasn't in your piece, but someone earlier today was explaining to me how this song really popped because of TikTok, which is apparently not just a song by Kesha from 2009, but a very popular new social media platform that all the kids are using.
2: So yeah, it was incredibly successful on TikTok and various others, I mean, so what's interesting about Lil Nas X, probably a lot of things, uh, somewhat, I think, to various people's surprise, he turns out to be a pretty interesting character. Um, As many people will know in the audience, he actually came out as a gay on the last day of Pride, Um, again, for either a hip-hop or a country star, quite an unusual occurrence, Uh, and again, it seemed sort of to be okay. Uh, but anyway, he, he's not just successful on TikTok and various other media and streaming platforms. He sort of is that, which is to say he's not a career musician. He's not a career anything. He's 20 years old, good Lord. But he, if he is anything, he is the internet, right? Before he started releasing music, which was last year, he was sort of like a meme artist, uh, a, a semi-professional troll, uh, and just sort of had this internet life he was part of Nicki Minaj's online army of sort of supporters. And he did sort of like memes that went, that were popular and, and, uh, and he just sort of embodies sort of like what it means to be the internet in 2019 or whatever year we're in. Uh, and, and so he slipped so easily into uh, things like TikTok and numerous other music, media, cultural streaming platforms. I think it's gonna reconfigure how people understand cultural production and distribution for the next couple of years.
0: How do you see the song affecting country? Do you think country is going to learn its lesson and close ranks and, and, and make sure this uh, atrocity doesn't happen again? Or do you think country is now a contested playing field?
2: I think it's, it's a contested playing field. It's also worth noting that, I, I mean, country is uh nationalistic often racist uh has all kinds of problems but it has been trying to grapple with hip-hop for quite some time probably about 20 years and to figure out how to integrate it into itself if only to draw in a greater audience or something like this and they've tried many many different strategies but none of them have ever been quite like this it's sort of an Uh, Indiscernibly ambiguous country hip-hop song by a black artist the closest there was like a country rapper named Cowboy Troy from I don't know a decade ago a little bit more than that who was I think we have to be honest terrible and I think that put people off the idea of country rap and what it it might be Uh, but so so country has been trying either with aesthetic generosity or just imperialism to try and uh, occupy a bit of, of uh, hip-hop and, and hopefully it won't just be that, like oh we figured, countries figured out how to sort of make money off of, off of black people, the way that, you know, golf figured out that if you get, t- if you make Tiger Woods huge, you, you know, there's an extra trillion bucks. Uh, and I'm hoping it won't go. It won't go that way. But we'll open up a little space for experimentation. Experimentation in country, which, as much as I love country, it's a little stagnant right now. And, and Lord knows it needs some breath of fresh
0: air. And moving back to hip hop, um, you made a really interesting point early in the article about how trap is not a beat. It is um, it is a number of sounds and beats that are uh, employed in in creating what is considered, a, that sounds like a genre because it's using the same sounds. And it felt like you were making an argument about the components of culture itself. That culture is, is, is seen as having these natural rhythms that are separate, but really the elements of it can be extracted and rearranged And the song demonstrates that and, and trap maybe is breaking out of its, its own trap and becoming, a, becoming something larger than just hip hop, right?
2: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great point. I think probably s- says a version of what I was trying to say better, better than I could. It's really fascinating that people always want sort of the single bullet solution. So, like, country is this. Uh, hip-hop is this. And, you know, the problem with genre is it's endlessly historically unstable. And in the, so far as it exists, it's always an ensemble of things, uh, some of which are very obvious to you. In country, you know, it's going to be the... Um you know, a banjo sound, right? Or a certain kind of country fiddle, and you think, oh, that's country. But that alone will never prove to be country, and you can always hear that country fiddle in some rock song and be like, well, that's confusing. Uh, and, and so there's a whole bunch of cues, some of which we register and some of which we don't, that, that make a genre. And because that's the case, it's always a bit flexible. You can swap one out and try a totally different new thing. So genres always have, in fact, more room to move than many might think. So trap has gotten locked into its own thing. We've sort of had like developments of trap. like I don't know if you're familiar with drill music in the UK, which is sort of like trap plus one. Uh, and it can get locked into sort of a narrow and narrower view of itself. And that's how genres die, uh, is they reduce themselves to a single uh, aspect. They ride that into the ground and they're done. Uh, and then it just sort of becomes parody or something like that. But genres don't have to do that. They can say like, well... Um, this can be a hip hop song and it can have lyrics that are about uh, you know rural agrarian lifestyle, um, or it can be uh, a country song and it can have these beats that we associate with with trap uh, and so it, it, that maybe is one of the great things about the song is it just reminds everyone that these categories are a lot have a lot more room for play in them than radio programmers think they do than um, genre assholes think they do and hopefully the people on the side of play will win until uh there's no more winning because there's no more genres because genres really only make sense in a certain kind of market scenario
0: and this this might be a reach uh, but uh I, i've always been interested in how um hip-hop seems to consider itself as a genre of rock like country is obviously a genre of rock punk is obviously a genre of rock But hip-hop stars often refer to themselves as rockers, and they think they're living the rock star lifestyle. And in a way, they are, right? What do you think of this weird idea I have?
2: I think that's interesting. I think, I mean, so I'm going to agree and disagree, as one does dialectically. I'm not sure country thinks of itself as rock. That has been accusation has been levied against her for quite some time. This isn't real country anymore. It's just just like rock country. It might as well be like arena rock, but they're just calling it country. But that's mostly an accusation from the outside. Um, That said, the desire for genre stars to identify themselves as rock stars you're talking about, that's absolutely real. Uh, You did a reach, so I'm gonna do a reach too. I think the comparison is something like the way all these social struggles will identify themselves as strikes even though they don't look to us like strikes they don't involve withdrawal of labor and things like this or the human strike or, or so on and you're like why are you calling it a strike well there's actually I think a good reason for that which is that historically strikes have been an extremely charismatic and successful form of political struggle um, that people want to identify themselves with no one wants to identify themselves with kind of like a loser uh, approach and similarly like like Something happened with the invention of teen culture with with all the uh, Sort of excess cash flowing through the economy in the 50s and the 60s that allowed rock which blooms in that moment to Achieve that sort of charismatic status as the pinnacle of um, Individual cultural achievement was to be the rock star even more than the movie star or anything else and so when rock started to flag in the 70s and was dead by, you know, nine, whenever Kurt Cobain died, uh, um, there was this idea, well, uh, we're the next rock, we're the next rock, and hip-hop clearly is the obvious example of that was the next rock and roll, and so the idea that, you know, that, that was early on in hip-hop, you get that nerd song, rock star, and and, and so on, and Jay Z calling himself a rock star over and over again, uh, and, and that idea that the most charismatic, successful, rich, Learjet flying, groupy fucking musician is by definition a rock star because that's what constitutes a rock star. So I think you're, you're right about that and everyone wants to be that. And how long we'll have to refer to rock, which has been dead for quite some time now, is baffling to me, but I guess it's going to go on for a while. I think, uh,
1: I think rock will live on as sort of a decadent signifier if not an actual genre of music.
2: I'm sure you're right. Yeah, I'm sure that's correct.
0: Well, I just got one more question, and it's about a... um, Or maybe we can ask some more questions about not this, but I'll just ask one more question on this subject at least. At the end of your article, you mention this trope that's emerging in in cinema recently of a black man speaking with a white voice, uh, and specifically in Get Out sorry to bother you and black Klansmen, and in these movies you see it as like um a horror element uh, it's a comic element but also there's like a it's more horror than comic in a way Th- this this voice has uh, has transformed their lives and has uh, kind of trapped them in this liminal space uh within the race line uh, but you see this song as as compl- as like um adopting it just for play in a moment and it kind of breaking the horror of it uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that
2: um, only to say like yeah, I said that i, I think that 's right uh, i mean i i i I mean I actually forgot some things in that catalog like there 's that great episode of Atlanta um it, with the character's his name in fact Teddy White, but he you know he 's played by a by a black actor, but in total whiteface it 's a sort of weird fantasia about michael jackson um, but again it 's a it 's a black body that 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 speaks and performs as, as if white and is and it's a horrifying episode. It's a really disturbing, vexing, somewhat comic a, as all of Atlanta is episode. So there's even more, I think of these examples and I am interested beyond the question of Lil Nas X and Old Town Road of why this particular trope is so dominant in, uh, black cinema television right now. And I think that, the underlying anxiety about um, recuperation, about the domination of a sort of imminent existential whiteness that like, takes over black bodies, especially at work, but not only, uh, is a very powerful one right now. And somehow it's enough in the air that Lil Nas X figures out well, that's a, that like, playing with anxieties and something like that's always what a joke is right the structure of a joke is it takes a deep anxiety and gives it a little twist so that we can um, laugh at it and in some sense that's what Old Town Road is except I don't want to reduce it to the status of a joke because it's kind of a great song
0: uh, so uh, I, I realize um, in the rush to talk about this song we didn't really introduce you you are uh, you are a professor you're a writer you're a poet you're a rock critic but who is Joshua Clover, how, how, when Joshua Clover looks at, in the mirror, what, what does he see?
2: Wow, this is getting deep. Uh, I see a person who's lived all their lives just to be on podcasts. So now my dream is coming true. Uh, No, I mean, that's actually, I appreciate that question. So I feel like I spent a large chunk of my life figuring out how to bring together the fact I liked learning shit about history and economic theory and political theory, and my own uh, political commitments and investments as an organizer or whatever the term you uses, and I kind of figured that out. You know, I, I finally wrote a book that I felt like brought those two things together in a certain way, and that felt thrilling. And also like I'm sort of sort of solved that problem, and now I have to figure riot out what strike, riot, that's, strike. riot strike riot strike riot. Yeah, and and sort of solve that that problem, and now have to um figure out what my next problem to solve is and I'm really not not sure what it is I've been thinking a ton about um, pipeline blockades and how I think we're going to see a lot more of those in the future and and the kind the specific kind of political form they have and their history uh, in relation to indigenous struggle and I'm just starting down the path of trying to develop a, a way of thinking about that in the framework that I use and that's currently what's on my mind a lot.
1: So we were all talking last night in the library, if you recall, and I believe you said, and I quote, it's more important to be a communist than a Marxist. And everyone agreed with you, but that might be a hot take to some of our listeners. You care to unpack that a little?
2: Sure. I actually I'm not sure I'm the one who first said it but I think when I agreed with it people looked at me funny because they think of me probably because I have a beard they think of me as a as a committed Marxist and Marx has certainly been useful to me in trying to have a framework to understand the the world Uh, I've lived with Marx and I teach Marx to students all the time I go through it over and over I've reached the point where I also see real limits to it Um, and I think that it's a it in a way, like, it's like having, I don't know, like, really good, it's like, a, a really safe car or something. Like, it helps avoid really bad errors that I think some people make. One of the debates we've been having here at camp is whether the entire political struggle should be directed at the idea of the state and de- and, and destroying the state. And I think, you know, Marx helps me think that's a very inadequate way to imagine political struggle. Uh, and... To, to think about the, the uh, compulsions built into capital that keep on working to form states in various ways and so on. So in that sense, I found Marx incredibly useful. But I don't think Marx is a political project. I think it's an analytical method. And I found that method useful. But it does not tell me what society to make exactly or how to make it. I also don't know the answer to those questions, but I think that's one of the reasons I spend these occasions with my friends and comrades is to try and puzzle that out. And that's not, Marx doesn't direct us toward that. He gives us tools to make analyses, but the desire for a society of things held in common, the desire for a society where you only have access to goods you need to survive if you work, that's not fundamentally Marxist. uh, And you don't need Marx to get to that. And I think that's an incredibly important fact.
0: Yeah, for our listeners, um, maybe they have the conception of a a communist camp of just being talking about Marx day in, day out, and the the stuff on the board and the formulas and all this stuff. uh, yeah, we're, we're not really talking about Marx, and that's not because we're not Marxists here. Some of us are, some of us aren't. But the urgency that we have, the things that really brings us together is our daily lives and our thoughts on the future. Thanks a lot for being here, Joshua. Do you have any closing thoughts or songs? Uh,
2: definitely no songs. It was super generous of you to invite me to do what we'll later refer to as singing. <laughs> um, uh, and I appreciate the chance to talk with you all, and especially... Uh, outside the context of the podcast, the chance to see you if, uh, once a year—if not more often—it's great to see you. There.
0: Thanks a lot.
1: All right, greetings to all you anti-fada super soldiers out there. I am at Communist Summer Camp with AP Andy. And there are so many cool people here. We're using it as a chance to do some interviews with some of our favorite writers and thinkers. And we are here today with Michelle O'Brien, who wrote some really good stuff for Commune. Thank you for being with us.
3: It's a pleasure.
1: All right. So let's get right into it. So you wrote a really good piece in the most recent issue of Commune about the history of queer liberation and how it fits into the wider leftist movement. And I thought it was good for a bunch of different reasons. Um, I guess lately I've been dealing a lot with these kind of right-wing social Democrats who think the left can't be too focused on queer issues because that's going to alienate the majority of working class people. And of course they have a certain idea of what a working class person is in their minds. Um, I like your statistic that you quoted about how the majority of young people are queer or do not identify as straight now. So um, that kind of puts a lie to the idea that most people don't care about these issues or are alienated by it. Um, these people that I'm talking about even do this bizarre kind of identity politics, which I have unfortunately encountered personally, where they claim things like, oh, well, there's homophobia in the black community, so leftists shouldn't focus too much on gay rights or whatever. Like, what, what, Let's interrogate that.
3: What's your, what's your take? you touched on a number of issues there. Um, so first, that article is only in online on the coming Magazine site. It's not in the most recent issue. But I was interested in thinking about uh, some of the struggles that have come up this year around the 15th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And that's been a space of a huge amount of gay organizing in New York City and a really massive uh, Heritage for Pride march. Uh, that I think had an estimated 4 million people. There were hundreds of cultural events. All the major cultural institutions in New York sponsored uh, the Stonewall anniversary events. And uh, that's given an opportunity for queer leftists, for queer radicals, for a lot of trans organizers, trans women of color, to foreground issues of poverty, incarceration, homelessness, really severe issues of class and oppression and poverty that trans uh, working class people are dealing with. And that's, of course, ignored and really erased by a lot of the gay movement, but that this year has been a really dynamic moment for these debates to be much more visible than they have been uh, so you alluded to the sort of this level of homophobic, queerphobic, transphobic leftists, and there's definitely a threat of that. I think there are clearly social democrats that seem to think that trans people and often black people and migrants have kind of hijacked. left and are distracting us from the issues the true issues of class that we should be prioritizing Uh, and that that a lot of queer activists and particularly these currents of queer socialists and communists that have been making arguments lately are really foregrounding how issues of queer struggle and trans struggle are class struggles are dynamic forces that can challenge capitalism that can invigorate class organizing and that are really being driven by working class queer and trans communities. Um, In terms of the piece about homophobia in black communities, um, this came up a lot around the uh, anti-gay marriage proposition in California that passed and a lot of people uh, blamed black voters around Obama's election. And this um, statistically turned out really not to be true at all. But even worse than that, it's uh, politically a really dead end that the most dynamic and vibrant moments of queer organizing historically have always been in relationship to black organizing and black insurgency. And that Stonewall is a really good example of that, that the Stonewall riots were in this period of massive rioting by working class black youth around the United States and that black struggle really enabled and drove forward. Queer, queer activism.
0: It's, it's, it's ridiculous, this concept that we can just ignore um, the LGBTQ as like a, a social movement right now. Obviously, Pride is like in New York, it's like the biggest event of the year, maybe besides like the Caribbean Pride Parade. And um, this year, there was this, uh, from what I understand, I don't know exactly the numbers, but a, a pretty massive queer liberation march, the, the morning of Pride, that was specifically trying to push back on the, um, you know, was often referred to as corporate pride, but also the ideology of recuperating pride just as into like a celebration of, of liberalism in general. Uh, do you want to talk about that, that March this year?
3: Absolutely. So uh, a coalition called Reclaim Pride came together and over the last six months has been having these big public weekly planning meetings and doing outreach at all the queer, cultural, and social events that have been happening leading up to Stonewall. And their intent was to have, and they pulled it off, beautifully. So the Reclaim Pride Coalition has been meeting for months, and uh, organized a march of 45,000 people on the Sunday morning before the big corporate pride. And the unifying principles were no police as marchers, and uh, no corporate floats. And corporate floats and police really dominate the presence of mainstream pride. And heritage, the Queer Liberation March, as it was called on Sunday morning, became a really quite remarkable convergence of a lot of uh, police abolitionists, anti-imperialists, anti-border, anti-prison, queer activists, and 45,000 people is quite substantial for a left event in New York City. And the dynamism, the vitality, the energy, the beauty of the event really was very moving for all of us who participated. My favorite banner that really sticks out in my mind, which was made by anarchists, uh, was Bottoms and Tops, All Hate Cops.
1: That's the antifada mindset right there, folks. Okay, so to switch gears a little bit, um, I saw you do a talk earlier this week about family abolition. And not only... I mean, it's it was about a lot of things, but like one thing I really liked about it was it kind of laid out a vision for how we're actually going to live and organize society after we overthrow capitalism. Um, so I guess we should start out with the basics, because a lot of our listeners might not know what family abolition means. Um, can you give a little bit of an explanation and maybe a little bit of history of it as a leftist demand?
3: Uh, family abolition has been, uh, lifted up periodically by, uh, militant revolutionary communists, by anarchists, by queer and feminist activists and others for the last couple hundred years. It started developing, uh, in, at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century. It showed up in the Communist Manifesto. Marx and Engels mention it as the notorious demand of the communists. Uh, it came up during the Russian Revolution with Alexander Kolontai's organizing around these mass uh, canteens and childcare centers that women were setting up during the revolution. Uh, it came up again at the end of the 1960s in gay liberation and radical feminist organizing. And uh, I've... A research project that I've done over the last few years is really trying to think through all the different things people meant by it over time and what we could mean by it now. One way to think about it is that we are not able to choose our, to choose how we relate to families uh, fully because we are all economically dependent on family units. People depend on their partners to help cover rent, to help pay their living expenses when they don't have jobs. People depend on partners uh, for being able to raise children and getting enough support for child rearing. Children growing up have very no economic options besides their parents. And if they're unlucky enough to end up in an abusive family, there are very few alternatives. And I'm particularly mindful of this for queer and trans children. And then as people age, uh, if you don't have kids taking care of you, it's quite, quite, people end up really isolated and really poor. And then when families cohere and take care of each other, there, uh, there can be a real risk of abuse, of violence, of homophobia. Some families are good, some aren't. But that uh, in the long term, that this is a social form that's developed with capitalism. It's a social form that's highly isolated. We have these isolated households, all of them buying and consuming things on their own, all dependent without getting real outside support and without being able to be interdependent with other people. And then what happens within that home is invisible and covered over, which enables all sorts of kinds of abuse. And that ultimately the kinds of futures that we need for full gender and sexual freedom, and communists figured this out a long time ago, need to come up with radically different systems of social reproduction. One of the ways that I think about this is that we need to liberate care and love out of the structure of the family and have that be a general phenomenon where we're able to take care of each other. And if people want to form romances or raise kids in the middle of that, that's fine, but that's not the economic unit of consumption and reproduction.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to hit because family abolition might sound a little scary to the average layperson who doesn't know what it means as a communist demand. I think also at different points in history, um, different communist movements or states have done it in a way that we might not necessarily agree with as the kinds of communists that we are right now. So yeah, I think it's really important to make the distinction between the family as a unit of consumption, which we do want to get rid of, and the family as a voluntary arrangement. They could mean any number of things, which is fine. So I just want to lay to rest everyone's fears that us commies want to take away your baby to be raised by robots in a state institution.
3: As I uh, said Yesterday chatting with somebody uh who you choose to fuck and who you fall in love with shouldn't have any impact on whether you get to eat dead ass
1: so moving along to your positive program, your plan for the commune i I think everyone's ears really perked up when you were talking about it, and like. I, I'm not even really that familiar with the case against this kind of programmatism because it just seems so, like, obviously inspiring and necessary to me. Because c- so, c- I was going to ask, like, what is the case for this kind of programmatism? But that seems like, I don't know, That seems like it goes without saying.
3: Uh, I I don't entirely think of it as a program. I'm interested in imagining sorts of ways social reproduction could be organized in a more free communist society and trying to recognize patterns in current organizing that might suggest or give hints for the direction of a communist struggle. I don't imagine that what I write down will be used as a plan, will be implemented by a party. I think the programmatism if programmatism just means talking about possible futures, we should be talking about possible futures and and Marx and Engels frowned on that other other socialists have frowned on that, but it absolutely can be a space of inspiration and creativity, but programmatism often implies a much stronger sense that we can plan the future
0: yeah, and um your uh description of this uh of this sort of utopian communal lifestyle that that please describe in just a moment. Um, it comes from, uh, it's inspired by the work of Fourier. Listeners of Literary Hangover might be aware of Fourier. I only knew Fourier from from Marx, like Marx and Engels. What I thought when I read it was like them dunking on him. But I read it again and it turns out they love Fourier. They're like, Fourier is the man. These, uh, this, this writing is great. And it's like very fantastic and fabulous and silly and like self-satirical and futurist and futuristic stuff. Um, so, you know, you'll hear the description now and take that with a grain of salt when you hear about uh, the, uh, the future commune.
3: So as a starting point in the present, I was thinking about how when people c- gather together to protest, to engage in militant organizing, and this is true at Standing Rock, at Occupy Wall Street, at uh, the Zod, at, at lots of different um, moments where people come into direct conflict with capital and the state, one of the first things they do is put together a collective kitchen. A lot of us have enjoyed collective kitchens and they become focal points for reproducing a struggle and become the nexus of a new kind of community. And that imagining this, thinking about this, the ways that people start organizing reproduction collectively when they're in struggle, it's very easy to imagine that in a period of global communization, of communist insurrection, that uh, survival would really depend on forming large-scale communes of a couple hundred people that cook together, that take care of each other, that watch each other's kids, that live together in proximity in a large building or a cluster of buildings, and that this could provide a template or the starting point of a new way of organizing communist social reproduction, and one where people are not in isolated units, where who they are having sex with doesn't have an economic impact, and where children are interdependent with a broader range of adults who are able to intervene if they're in a really bad situation with their parents, and that people can choose a much more heterogeneous away, array of ways of raising children, and that children and parents have the opportunity to opt out when it's not working for them. And that they're because they're economically um, tied together with a much broader group of like 200, 250 people, that, that, that that's available to everyone. This has some similarities to Charles Fourier, who... Uh, proposed a kind of revolutionary vision of the commune in in his book in 1808. And um, there are many things about Fourier that I think are really interesting, and one of them is he really took seriously that people's sexual freedom, sexual pleasure, and that rich, fulfilling sexual lives were part of a good future.
1: Hell yeah. So um, a lot of your ideas seem to come out of communization theory, which advocates kind of a complete paradigm shift within a single generation or for some things even a shorter time frame than that. Um, So in in thinking through this and like trying to wrap my mind around it, I'm wondering like how we're going to sell people who are raised within the current paradigm that we all were raised in on such a drastic shift in every aspect of life or even like ourselves. Like I know a lot of leftists who really believe in this stuff for the world and in the abstract sense, but... Most of them are in fairly traditional kinds of relationships themselves and not really willing to interrogate their own desires in their own lives and like I include myself in that a little bit, so what are your thoughts?
3: I have no idea how long a communization transition would take or what it would look like uh, in terms of time frame, but on that front, I would say that the questions of queer liberation and queer struggle, the notion that driven by feminists, by queer people, by trans people, and in some ways by working class communities of color that have less normative families because of economic conditions and racial oppression, that there's um, some richer, more fulfilling, more profoundly joyful ways of living than heteronormativity and the kind of misogyny that a lot of heterosexual relationships are built on. And that that part of a revolutionary transition is people finding their way out of the nightmare conditions of standard heterosexuality. And men and women can keep having sex, but finding ways of doing that built on dignity.
1: No offense to my husband, who I do this show with, but that sounds pretty great. So another thing I found really interesting in your talk was the idea of people who can't get their needs met currently, their needs for sex and love. And I think someone asked a question about it. Like, sex workers often fill that role for people. So would there be something akin to sex work in the kind of queer poly future? Is that some kind of socially necessary labor that people are going to do? And how will that track with the idea of consent, considering that even in the communist future, um, you know, Dovey's desire to abolish the distinction between work and non-work notwithstanding, sometimes people won't really feel like going to work or doing their job, but they'll do it anyway for the good of the collective.
3: These are tricky questions, and there's a lot to say about the incel movement and all sorts of ideas people have about sexual needs. Um, Fourier believed that people have sexual needs, and if they're not fulfilled, that can lead to a really deep kind of unhappiness. As a queer person, I've encountered something like this in my life. Finding my way to a fulfilling sexuality was really essential for my gender transition and for me um, developing as a person. Um, And Fourier was interested in trying to think about social forms where everyone where there was no obligation around sex, where there was full consent around sex, and everyone, the social structure could be enabled in such a way that everybody could have a rich, fulfilling sexual life. Uh, I certainly, I think there's a lot more possibility of, in a commune, trying to think about sexual health alongside other kinds of health and affirming and defending the right of everybody to be able to engage only in consensual relationships and being able to talk about and think about how to deal with folks who are really not able to interface sexuality in a way that's good for them. As well, I think it's worth saying that that our models of attraction and our models of desire probably are going to transform a lot over the course of a feminist transformation of society.
0: So we have a lot of, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, we have a lot of young queer and trans listeners. And I think from our normal discussions, we probably don't have a lot of advice to give them specifically. So I guess what, what would you say to, to someone like that? Someone maybe in their, their late teens, early 20s, who's learning about communism, wants to get involved, um, but uh, you know that's, that's where they're starting from. What, what, would, what would you say?
3: Well, uh, Pinko will be launching our Kickstarter in the next month. It's a new queer communist journal that I'm helping to edit. And this article on Fourier will appear in the first issue in October. So I encourage people to um, spread the word about our Kickstarter and to subscribe to Pinko and read it and write for us. Uh, There's a lot of queer left organizing to get involved in. There are queer people in every major militant struggle uh, in the United States and around the world. And increasingly, within queer circles, there's explicit discussions about socialism and communism and building new sorts of queer-centered revolutionary organizations.
0: Hell yeah!
1: Thank you so much for joining us, and enjoy the rest of Communist Summer
3: Camp. Thank you for having me on.
1: And now I'm speaking with Chloe Watlington of Commune Magazine. Hello, Chloe. Hello, Jamie. Thank you for being with me today.
4: Thanks for having me on. So
1: this issue of Commune starts out with a very personal piece from you. A very powerful piece. Um, Because we're used to seeing sort of letters from the editor at the beginning of a magazine when they're like, Oh, hello, dear readers. I'm going to tell you a charming anecdote, and now you can read about uh, this, this. This magazine is all about self care or whatever. This is the skincare issue, and this just like, just, like obliterates that model with something very fucking real. So, just, uh, do, you, do you want to summarize it a little bit, or should I? Go ahead. So, you start out talking about your brother's death by suicide and kind of tie it in to why you have the politics that you do. And I think one part of it that was really resonant for me was this paragraph here where you say, if we are to achieve this goal, and the goal being um, providing a decent life for everyone, um, we have to start by calling these deaths what they are. Deaths of despair, yes, but more precisely, capital punishment for those who fall down in a winner-take-all society. And that jumped out at me because like, every, people, people want to individualize things like suicide or addiction, or they want to say, like, oh, it's complicated. Like, who can ever really know why people are killing themselves? But, like, you cite statistics here, and I don't think it's a coincidence or a mystery why deaths from suicide and addiction are going up right now during a, during a capitalist crisis. So it, it, it kind of reminds me of some stuff I've talked with Natasha Leonard about like revealing the violence of the status quo and not just not, not just seeing it as an individual problem. Um, does that, I, I don't know if I have a real question there, but what do you, what do you think about that?
4: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'll start by just describing a little bit where this term death of despair comes from. It comes from two Princeton researchers who noticed a rapid rise in death rates and went to look and see who was dying and who was dying sooner. And they found that it, it was, you know, these things I say over and over again in my article, uh, opioids, uh, liver failure, suicide, and, um, I agree. It's it it correlates directly to the economy, and uh, they they do make that connection. But I think it could be made a little bit stronger. That you know our lives we're not being taken care of on on the whole, and so we're paying for that with our lives. But and people are also not just like becoming immune to it. Like the status quo is not something that you just sort of quietly suffer through it's something that kills you and that's what i'm trying to get across in this piece
1: yeah i definitely i definitely get that from the piece um it reminded me of a family member that i lost not that long ago who a lot of his i, I mean, it was a combination of things but mainly depression and alcoholism and a lot of his anxiety and depression came from the fact that he was not able for whatever reason to achieve the markers of a quote unquote good or successful life under capitalism. And I've seen so many people struggling with this and like really great people and it sucks. I I don't even know what else to say about it because it's just so like self evidently shitty to me, but not everybody sees it that way. And I think one way to make people see it that way is to include human stories like this at the same time that we're doing communist theory or whatever, because we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, of, of the reasons why we're doing any of this, right? Like there are people, there are like Marxists out there who say, oh, I, this, is, this is a science. I'm, doing, I'm just doing science and logic, but like, why? Like there has, there's gotta be a human reason. And I think um, this piece does a really good job of providing that.
4: First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. These losses are so hard, and they take such a toll on us each time. And one of the I, one of the things I just you know want to get off my chest is just how hard it was to write this piece. Like it kind of came out of me automatically. But then, as soon as I realized that everyone was going to be reading it and talking about it, I just totally freaked out, and I felt completely vulnerable and scared about reactions and if people wouldn't understand what I was trying to do by writing this personal, this sort of memoir manifesto, which you're right, it is a kind of different genre than we're used to reading. Um, And that fear went away as soon as it came out because I got so, so, so many notes from people who had lost people like my brother Rodney or my father. And so, so many people had the same story had been through the same thing. And it's obviously something we're all feeling together and we do have to find each other in this wreckage and figure a way out of it. And I think so many of the people who wrote me really, really kind of stared that down when they read this piece. And, and so many people said, you know, now I, I just, let's just do this. Let's just fight. And that, that felt really good.
1: Yeah. It's, it's good. To, it's good to be reminded like all the time why we're why we're why we're here why we're trying to figure this shit out despite it seeming like an impossible task at this point in history like how do you make a revolution i don't know but it's worth trying and like you say in the last line trust me when i say that the other option is much worse i think that's really resonant
4: Yeah, I think sometimes Commune Mag and its readers get a bad rap for for not knowing what to do, for not knowing what the post-capitalist future looks like. But this is our way of saying, like, we're trying to figure it out, you know, and that's the whole point of this magazine, was to try to find other people that are trying to figure it out and are trying to, like, imagine a world that's better than this, to be cheesy, to imagine a life worth living. And there are people who are out there who are beginning to do this work, this practical political work of figuring out how to build a new world and what that means and to really describe it. And um, I'm really excited to start that process. Dead
1: (laughs) ass. That's one of our words that we like to say here at the Antifada. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Sean picked it up at work and now I have picked it up from him and people think it's funny. So there we go. So... (laughs) Yeah, this is a really good-looking issue. I'm very excited to read it. Um, so many good pieces from so many good people. I haven't read the whole thing yet. But um, do I have a question here? I don't know. You want to, like, highlight a, a few other pieces that you think are worthwhile? I mean, they're all worthwhile, but that you think are very special?
4: In In Commune, my role is the front of the book. So I get my little, I think it's about 21 pages here. And so I write briefings and happenings with people. And then I do these little short essays. And in the next issue, we even want to add even more modules and lists and fun stuff so that you really open up the front of the book to like a dynamic set of graphics and writing by people who aren't normally writers or wouldn't have the chance to get their stories out there, which is the point of happenings, which I really like doing. It's just a photo and a caption. And then the short essays are usually little dispatches, uh, maybe sometimes profiles. And one I really like in this issue is by Rachel rabbit white and it's called strippers on strike. And this was just a really fun uh, piece to work on because she's a great writer. She's written for a lot of publications like vice and um, she had this. She also wrote a very personal political story about stripping and what happened in the strip clubs when the Dynamex ruling came, which affected corporate strip clubs, but strip clubs all over California that um, had been hiring strippers as independent contractors. And when the Dynamex ruling came, they could no longer hire them as independent contractors, and the managers of all these strip clubs, especially the corporate chain ones, organized the strippers to fight the ruling, saying that the problem was this new law. Yeah, and they were wise enough to know that that, that, that that was not the case. And they're now working to try to figure out how to make a strippers union. And I think it's really cool to see all these different sectors of the economy beginning to come together and like, you know, unionize and strike And it was around the same time we were working on this article that the Uber and Lyft drivers went on strike over the Dynamex ruling so it really felt like it was tapping into something that was happening all over hell
1: yeah and as our economy becomes more and more gigified and dependent on workers who are classified as independent contractors despite the fact that they are very clearly not entrepreneurs but employees um, that's going to be more increasingly important. So I also wanted to talk a bit about a talk I, our panel that you gave yesterday, mm-hmm. time is an illusion, um, about climate change. And you showed some pictures from some of your travels in the Midwest where they've had a lot of flooding and recently in an effort to kind of see how folks were dealing with climate change that's already happening um what did you learn there
4: i am working on a new essay uh about agriculture in the midwest and like jamie said this was the wettest year on record it seems like more and more we just experienced the wettest year on record and the hottest year on record and the the rain in the midwest made it so that so many farmers couldn't plant their seeds um and that also the grain that they had stored from the year before had had been flooded and saturated from the bottom up. So they're really um, they're really desperate because a lot of them also have mortgaged or on loan farm equipment. Um, farm labor has been really hard to come by since the Trump administration has been cutting down on uh, their border policies. And what you get is a group of farmers in the Midwest who are just absolutely losing their minds and so one of the things I did in my research is I called this psychologist to the to the farmers and he told me that he's so overwhelmed that he just is gonna go uh, this is very farmer like he's (laughs) he's about to just turn off his phone and go to Montana on a fly fishing trip to unwind Mm -hmm. from all the crazy calls he's getting from these Midwest farmers who can't plant their seeds but one of the stories he's told me is that uh, at a at a conference insurance salesman came up to him and said this farmer walked into my office and I said hey man you gotta start working off your debts you gotta start paying us just a little bit of money even if you don't have anything coming in this year and the farmer in the office pulled out a gun and shot himself in the head yeah so I'm writing about how climate has changed the climate has changed we're affected by it already it's not something we're waiting for for it to happen. It's something that's happening to us. And so who is managing and controlling the, the agriculture and what are other, um, I wanna speculate about what other forms of agriculture, or collective farming we could do. And then that, that is what Jamie was talking about is that I went to the, to the Midwest to the, uh, the most important high frequency trading peon in Aurora, Illinois, where farm prices are set and made way beyond our control. So, given
1: what you've learned, um, how are we going to deal with climate change <laughs> in five minutes or less?
4: <laughs> well, we are going to need communism first of all, and probably a revolution to get there. But I really don't think it'll be that hard to to actually learn to tend the land together and to like, you know, there's a wetlands isn't the worst thing ever if part of the part of the land that has the problem with agriculture right now is that the places where people grow things like cotton and wheat and corn and soybeans which are most like corn is just mostly ethanol of course right and feeding cows but mostly ethanol and um, and we just don't even need that so I don't think that like growing food is going to be that big of a problem once we figure out how to organize like you know time and decision making and I think the best the best offer on table is to um is to kind of divide, uh, divide, divide up our time into the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom. And obviously, agriculture will be in the realm of freedom, but also tending the land. So I've read and studied a lot about Native Americans in California and how they would, you know, by the thousands, you know, reseed a meadow or plant trees. And I just think we need to, t- humanity needs to undertake a giant process of. Um, planting trees, millions and millions of trees, building solar panels, and figuring out how to grow food together in a way that reduces drudgery and the dumb food that we grow already. Well, you're making me feel a little bit better somehow about our
1: long-term prospects on this planet. Um, One thing that came up in the discussion that we had after this panel, um, and I chose to be in the part in the section on uh, borders, citizenship, and race as it relates to climate change, is, I mean, obviously, we got to get rid of borders. That's very important to the global communist project. You cannot have socialism in one country. I mean, people have tried it. I don't really... Th- I wouldn't call any of those societies really communist. I would call them state capitalism, but I know that's a hot take for some people. But... Um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, the idea that um, we're going to have climate change refugees, right? We're going to have migration, and you know, even even in a future where we're not creating the push factors with imperialism and like fucking with the governments of other countries, um, there's still going to be climate change pushing people to move from place to place. And um, I think the the sort of liberal or even social democratic idea that we can just absorb an infinite well actually no some liberals have the idea that it's like not a big deal and we can absorb an infinite number of migrants under the current capitalist paradigm which is not true and then there are social democrats like you know including bernie sanders where you bump up against the limits of social democracy when they're like oh yeah we want a generous welfare state but we need a strong border otherwise, because there's a lot of poverty in this world, like Bernie said, and it would just be a disaster and they would crash the system. And obviously, those are both bad ways of approaching it. The second one, though, is like a lot more honest about what social democracy actually means. Right. Like, I don't know how like people in the DSA, for instance, can vote to endorse Bernie Sanders and then turn around and get mad at him for not supporting open borders. Like he's a social Democrat. That is by definition done within the boundaries of the nation state. But, um, oh yeah. So the idea that people would still be migrating and we, we were kind of thinking through how we would deal with that. And we came up with some, some like some notions, not like an actual program or anything, but like the idea that we could sort of incorporate them and distribute them throughout the habitable world, um, in a way that makes sense and incorporate them into this new model of collective care where we all live in, you know, Michelle's uh, really nice apartment building units of 200 people and they're, like, very diverse and in, in all sorts of ways and they have people from different cultures and people from different places and people of varying sexualities and races or whatever, although hopefully race will begin to lose its social meaning in the communist future but like I really like the idea that we could somehow incorporate the free movement of people into this like
4: collective care model I feel like I just talked for a really long time I like this idea and I think it's it's really smart and it's really really kind of easy way to talk about it because it's true like there aren't there's no there's no over capacity like on earth or in a city or in any certain region like people can go once we abolish borders people can go where they want to go as long as there's the support and transportation you know high-speed trains would probably be best to get people around and moving to where they want to be and then the if as long as there's enough food and and vital resources uh, being shipped around and people can live wherever and the places that are affected by climate change, you know, like the shores of India and, and other places will, will have to just be shut down for a while while they restore. And while we do big giant restoration projects together. So I know we can't really predict the future,
1: but like, what's, I guess I should ask, what's your optimistic case for the next 20 years and what, like, what, what's the likeliest case scenario for the next 20 years? Like, we were trying to do this exercise, and even just naming the year 20 years from now, even just saying, tw- even just saying the year 2039, like, filled us all with this indescribable dread. <laughs> like, no one wants to think about that year, do we? So, like, what
4: do you think is going to happen, and what do you hope happens? Well, I'll just say what I hope happens, which is that I hope that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders gets elected, the Green New Deal is put into place, that all gets rolling. Um, it ends up, you know, sort of not really being enough to to take care of everything that's going on with everyone. And a massive social movement rises up um, kind of alongside. Of that. It, it's growing now, so it's definitely going to, going to keep growing so a massive social movement rises up and is able to transform society into a stateless borderless free place where, <laughs> where everyone has what they need and we're going to do this because like I said the other option is much worse so we might as well and we're going to have you know the other option too is this stuff like This terrible, you know, civil war prophecy like uh, that, you know, um, people are just going to start fighting each other or the fascists are going to take over or capitalism is just going to go on as such. Like those ideas, those things aren't going to happen because people aren't going to let them. They're going to fight. And I feel a fighting spirit rising up. And I think I think the world is going to change really soon. And I'm here for it because it's going to be dead ass. (laughs)
1: Um, That's not exactly how you use that word But I really appreciate That you have adopted our lexicon So thank you Um, I think that's a pretty good place to end it I I usually ruin it By like adding one more thought of my own That like runs way over What we were supposed to be talking about Um, You know what, fuck it I'm going to do it anyway My greatest fear is that um, Capitalism will somehow figure out How to solve the problem of climate change And continue on in an even worse form than it is now. But you know what? I like your vision better. So let's leave it at that. Thank you so much for being with me today, Chloe. Thanks for having me. And now we can go have dinner. Let's
4: do it.
2: Can't nobody
1: tell me
2: nothing You can't tell me nothing He's got have have a habit, diamond, diamond rings and bendy sports bras Riding down Rodeo in my Maserati's sports car Got no stress, I've been through all
0: You play that?